who is Jesus? So often when we look at that question, we're looking at it evangelistically, aren't we? We're looking at that question to explain it to people who don't necessarily know who Jesus is. But most of the Bible was not written to unbelievers. It was written to believers. So as the Bible tells us about Jesus, it's not just there to sort of tell non-believers what to think about Jesus, but it's there for believers too. I was struck by our series a few months ago on our fight uh, for joy and how to fight for joy. How central it is that we see and savour Jesus as our fight, as we fight for joy. Indeed, central to the whole of our Christian lives as we want to see who Jesus is. If we want to grow in godliness, we need to go to Jesus. If we want to experience more of God in our lives, we need to go to Jesus. If we want peace, joy and contentment, we need to go to Jesus. Now we're helped by this that the whole Bible is actually about Jesus, isn't it? So wherever we go in the Bible, um, we actually get to find out about our Lord Jesus Christ. But I thought for the Sunday evenings in uh, this autumn and winter, we'd look directly and deliberately at the person of Christ. So my goal here is not to improve our knowledge of theology, though I hope that happens too. My goal is that in looking in the face of Christ, we might see the very glory of God and be able to rejoice in that in our lives. And as we behold that glory, we might be transformed into the likeness of his son. As uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, I'm afraid I don't have verses on the back of your sheets today because there's quite a lot of verses. But all, uh, we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as we see Christ, we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now each week we're going to be looking at a different name or title given to Jesus Christ. But from different angles, we're going to be looking at the same person... Uh, but from different ways. It's like looking in inside a house. If you look in one window, you see one thing. If you look in another window, you might see it from a different angle. It's the same house, but hopefully this will give us a more complete picture of Jesus, that we might love him more dearly and follow him more dearly. So uh, we're going to look this week at the Son of Man. I'm just going to switch this fan off. It's actually quite cool up at the front. I hope you guys are okay. I hope the door's open, so hopefully we should be all right. But this week we're going to look at the Son of Man. Now in Greek, that's huios toi anthropou, um, just so you know. Uh, but in Hebrew, it's ben adam. Now we'll come to that in a few moments' time. But what we need to know is what does Jesus mean when he calls himself the Son of Man? What did Jesus mean to tell us by using that title for himself? Uh, for himself? We've actually started with this because this is Jesus' favourite title for himself. He uses it 28 times in Matthew's Gospel, 13 times in Mark's Gospel, 25 times in Luke's Gospel, and 12 times in John's Gospel. It's his favourite title for himself. So to get our heads around this, though, what we're going to do, we're not going to start with the Gospels where Jesus uses that that title. Actually, we're going to look at the unfolding story of Scripture. Because Jesus doesn't speak those words into a vacuum. There's a history and a pedigree to this phrase that we need to understand if we want to get our heads around this. Now, as I said just before, there's a bit of jumping around here. Don't feel that you need to go to every single verse that I mention. Um, And if you're not familiar with how the Bible uh, is put together, then feel free to just listen. Uh, We don't need to necessarily go to all of them. But if you want to come and ask me about any of them afterwards, uh, I've got them all written down here. So we're going to start with, first of all, looking at the Son of Man in the Old Testament. 
The first Ben Adam that we get in scripture is Cain. Because you might have picked up on the facts uh, with the, the way that it's worded. The phrase son of man in Hebrew literally means son of Adam. Uh, I don't know if you've ever wondered what Adam and Eve thought of Cain, obviously before the, the murder takes place. Um, but I've wondered whether they might have considered whether he would be a fulfiller of prophecy. Think about it, Genesis 3.15, um, we're told, aren't we, that this was spoken, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now here we have that, that prophecy. Now, if you were the people at that time, who would you think would be the prime candidate to be this serpent crusher, this one who would defeat evil? Well, we're told it's the offspring of the woman. Who's the offspring of the woman? It's Cain, the offspring of the wooden woman, the son of Adam, the son of man. And God does tell him to have victory over the serpent, over sin itself. Genesis 4 verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here, even Cain is actually told to defeat sin, if you like. He's told to, to not let it crouch at his door, but to defeat it, rule over it. But the first son of man is an utter failure. He fails to conquer sin. He fails to crush the serpent. And actually ends up murdering his brother, doesn't he? He's sent into exile in the land of Nod. So the first son of man we have, if you like, the first son of Adam, is a real failure. Abel, the second Ben Adam, looks more promising, doesn't he, as you read that story. He offers acceptable sacrifices to God. He's a shepherd by profession. A profession that goes on to have a great future, doesn't it? Moses the shepherd, David the shepherd, God the shepherd, the good shepherd. But actually... Abel is murdered by his own people, his own brother, no less. And his blood, we're told in Hebrews, cries out for judgment. So the second son of man starts to show us a bit more of a fuller picture about what's expected. But that picture is incomplete. And it ends in the judgment of man, not in the defeat of the serpent. The other Ben Adams were not really told much about. Uh, it begins to be used in the Bible simply as a term to denote a human being. Especially in the human sense of weakness and feebleness, in a way that emphasises our frailty and weakness. And by the times we get to the, the writings in scripture, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it's almost being used exclusively that way. In the writings, again and again, it's linked with man on one line and son of man on the next line. So Hebrew poetry often has two lines that roughly mean the same thing. It's called parallelism. So Psalm 144 verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? The idea there with the son of man is it's just a man, uh, just a mere man. There are two notable exceptions, though, in the, the writings. It's used quite a lot in the writings, but it's generally just in, in that sense. The first exception is Psalm 8 verses 4 to 8. It goes like this. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. See the parallelism? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You see the psalm here uses the idea of frailty and weakness. Just a man. 
And it sort of harkens back to Genesis, doesn't it? You get those words, dominion and, uh, and uh, things being put under his feet. But actually here we see a sort of glorious picture of this son of man. Sort of what Adam should have been. Uh, getting uh, things where he actually get into a situation where he actually does have dominion over creation like Adam was created to have. One where he does have glory and honour. So it sort of looks forward to something that we, we understand in the New Testament, that it has a bit of a deeper meaning. That somehow this weak human being is Lord of all things, has all things under his feet uh, in this psalm. So it sort of uses the idea of weakness and frailty, but it sort of shocks you with the idea then that he has this great dominion. The other exception is Psalm 80, verse 17. Uh, psalm 80, verses 16 and 17, I'll read to you. They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Here the son of man is pictured as God's right hand man. Uh, And there was an expectation from this that there would be potentially a figure called the son of man who would rescue God's people. The idea does appear a little bit in Jewish texts between the the Testaments. This idea of this son of man who has power that's given by God. But more likely they were picking up in those texts in between on what the prophets say about the son of man. So the prophets speak again about the son of man, but they start to take it to another level. So we've had the, the history, we've had the writings, but now we have the prophecy in prophecy, the, the Son of Man appears prominently in two major prophets, in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. In Ezekiel, the terms used over 90 times addressing the prophet as Son of Man. Now again, it emphasises his humanity. God here, the Lord of creation, is speaking to a mere Son of Man. But it also then gave that term huge prophetic significance. The Son of Man was the one to whom God spoke. The son of man was the one who spoke God's words to his people. In Ezekiel's case, he was speaking of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and yet the final victory of God's people. So the term is used again and again and that that idea sort of builds up uh, with the book of Ezekiel. But it's also used in the book of Daniel. And that's really the crescendo of this term. That's why we had Daniel 7 uh, read earlier. The sort of full revelation of what we're talking about. So if you've got Daniel 7, it would be helpful to have it open. Uh, Daniel 7. (coughs) Now, here in Daniel 7, it's not Ben-Adam, because actually this is written in Aramaic rather than in Hebrew, but it's a translation of that term. Now, I had the whole chapter read to give you the full picture. Often we just read one or two verses in this chapter. But I wanted you to see that the context really is the suffering of the saints under the persecution of these four terrible beasts. You see in verse 21, don't you, what's going on? As I looked, the, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. All the way through, we get these images of this terrible beast or these terrible beasts that are persecuting God's people. So the context when we cut, we'll come in a moment to the son of man and to the ancient of days is the suffering of God's people. Uh, and also uh, we see it in verses 9 and 10. Have a look at me there. Uh, yeah, come back to me then. So we've the, got the context of suffering and then what happens in the context of this suffering? Verses 9 and 10. As I looked... 
thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was uh, like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. God comes and takes his seat in the context of this suffering of this persecution, and the books are opened. And then verse 11, And I looked then because of the sounds of the great word that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion were taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. You see, those who have been making war on the saints here are judged. That's what's going on there. The horn, the beast, they're all judged as the books are open and God uh, reveals what's happening. And then verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This mysterious son of man then comes in that context and is given dominion, glory and an everlasting kingdom. All peoples, nations and languages will serve him and his kingdom shall not pass away. So two things we need to note as we think about this. The first is that the term is not something new. It doesn't appear for the first time in Daniel. So this is not in opposition to what we've just seen in the writings and in history. This is actually a clearer revelation of what we've already seen. If you remember, the son of man was to have dominion in the Psalms, wasn't he? To have all things put under his feet. Um, in fact, Adam, really, was supposed to have all things under his feet. His children were supposed to defeat evil. Well, here is what the sons of Adam never were. Here is evil finally defeated by man, the son of Adam, the son of man. He finally has dominion in the way that man was designed to have dominion in the first place, right at the beginning. This is flesh and blood, a man, but truly being what a man should be. We now have a fuller picture of the one who is to come. A son of Adam will sit on the throne. So that's the first thing we should note. The second thing that we should note is that the interpretation of this prophecy is not open to interpretation, if you like. We're told who the son of man is. Now hold your breath. Uh, This might genuinely come as a shock. Have a look at verses 17 and 18. These are four great beasts, are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Verse 21 and 22. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Or verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is God's people, the saints. We shall receive the kingdom 
we shall rule forever. Now that might not be what you were expecting. You were expecting the Sunday school answer, weren't you? You were expecting, oh, it's Jesus. Mm. Well, we'll come to that in a few moments' time. But somehow at the end of all this, we are involved in this picture as well. Somehow, in some sense, we are the son of man. That's what Daniel is telling us there. Now, it might sound a bit confusing, but to understand it, we really need to come uh, to the New Testament. So look now at the Son of Man in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, again and again, Jesus uses the title Son of Man. We can't possibly go through all those different instances when Jesus uses this phrase, or we'll be here all night. But what is different as Jesus starts to call himself this is that he calls himself the Son of Man. If you've noticed, everywhere else that we've seen in scripture, it's a son of man, or one like a son of man. But here Jesus is calling himself the son of man. And as Jesus uses that phrase and takes it to himself to say he is really the one, he uses it in three different ways. He uses it to talk about three different things when he's talking about himself. The first is his heavenly origin. The second is his mission on earth. And the third is his glorious coming. And we're just going to look briefly at each of those three things. So first of all, his heavenly origin. Now, it's not true to say that when Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, he's trying to emphasize his humanity. You do sometimes get the idea, don't you, as those sort of in opposition to the son of God, son of God, son of man. And it has been used in the church down the ages in that way to sort of make that difference between the two. So Augustine, for example, he wrote, the son of God became the son of man, that you who were the sons of men might be sons of God. Great phrase, totally true, but it's not the way that Jesus uses that phrase. So let's have a look at the biblical evidence. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. John 6.62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Mark two twenty eight. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Or Matthew 9, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, if you think about those phrases where he's saying about how he's come from heaven, how he can forgive sins, how he's Lord of the Sabbath, He's hardly emphasising his humanity and normalness, is he, as a human being? Actually, he's emphasising the fact that he is heavenly, that he's got heavenly origin. So he uses it in that way. The second way that he uses it is his mission on earth. Again and again, when Jesus refers to himself in this way, he talks about his death. He talks about the cross. You even get some strange phrases like this, Mark 9, 11 to 12. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, I don't know about you, but I've always wondered about that. Where is it written that the son of man must must suffer and be treated with contempt? seems a very strange thing when you get this glorious picture of the son of man in Daniel 7, where is this idea of him being treated with contempt? Well, it could be a nod back to Abel, if you think about it, the son of Adam, who did suffer and die, who did suffer and die at the hands of his own people. We don't know for sure, but it could be bound up with this idea that actually part of the notion of the son of man is linked with this idea of suffering 
And that's why Jesus uses it uh, with uh, this phrase. A similar idea is picked up in Hebrews 2, which quotes Psalm 8 that we mentioned earlier. The Son of Man there is made a little lower than the angels, that he might suffer and die. He takes on our flesh, that he might become our brother and die for us. But in the future then, in uh, in Hebrews 2, we see him crowned with glory and majesty. Which brings us uh, to that third one. The third way that he uses it uh, is when speaking of his glorious coming. Now I'm just going to take Matthew's gospel and just show you the ways that he does it there. So Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Matthew twenty six sixty four. Jesus said to him, You have said so, uh, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see, <laughs> through all those quotes though, he's talking about his glorious coming. And do you see the imagery from Daniel 7 with the clouds and the angels being picked up? Jesus here is seen as the Son of Man who comes with the clouds and is given dominion over all things. Now, interestingly, if you think about it, this is not a picture of his, fir- of his second coming in the first instance, but his ascension. So actually, as he comes through the clouds to meet with God the Father to receive his kingdom, actually, that is his ascension. He then comes back with the clouds, doesn't he, when he comes back? But actually, some of those verses are talking about Jesus ascending to heaven. Uh, that's why in Acts, Stephen sees Jesus as the Son of Man seated with his father, Acts seven fifty six, And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus is already ruling in heaven. Jesus' kingly rule has already begun. He's already had that encounter with his father where he's taken the power, authority and dominion. The Son of Man is not exclusively used as the second coming, but of his coming into his kingdom, coming into glory. His death, resurrection and ascension, which makes sense with some of those verses where he says you won't taste death before you see this happen. But it's not just the Gospels that pick up on this image of Jesus as the glorious son of man from Daniel 7. The book of Revelation does too. And this is where we finish our tour uh, of the Bible. So Revelation 1 verses 12 to 18. I'll read them to you. They might sound familiar from the song we sang earlier. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash round his waist. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, as we read this vision in in Revelation 1, we're definitely talking about Jesus, the one who died and yet is alive forevermore. And here he's described as the son of man. And we get a description of what he's like, a golden sash around his chest, taken from Daniel's vision of a man in Daniel 10. But do you notice how the son of man is described here? Hair like wool, eyes like flames of fire, shining like the sun. Does it ring a bell from our reading from Daniel? Well, here is the final piece of the picture at the end. The son of man and the ancient of days are one. In the same way that the son says, I and the father are one. They're not the same person. It takes a bit to get your head around, doesn't it? But it's the Trinity, so it's supposed to take you a bit to get your head around. But what we see here is a God-man. One who died and is now alive. One who is served by all people. One who holds the church in his hands. And one who later in Revelation 14 will come with his angels to judge the world. John writes in his gospel, uh, John 5:27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So the glorious judge at the end of time is both God and man. He's given dominion over all things. He's flesh and blood, yet every knee will bow to him. So it seems, doesn't it, really clear from the New Testament that Jesus is the son of man. It was the Sunday school answer. But how does that fit with what we actually saw in Daniel 7? Well, more briefly in our last section, we're going to look at the Son of Man and the church. We're just going to look at two passages to get a handle uh, on how this works. The first one is Matthew 19.28. says this, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, though, is talking to his disciples. He's explaining what's going to happen at the end. And he's saying that the disciples will reign with him. The kingdom really is given to the saints. So Jesus' victory is our victory. And Jesus' rule will be our rule. We will reign with him. And I don't think that's just limited to the 12 disciples. And we'll see why as we look at the other passage. The other passage is uh, in uh, Revelation again. The risen son of man talking uh, to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. Revelation 3.21. He says this to them. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. The invitation here is given to all believers that if we overcome, if we keep going, we will share Jesus' throne. We will be that glorified son of man in some way as we share Jesus' reign with him, flesh and blood, and yet ruling. And I don't think that this verse was just limited to the Odysseans any more than the previous verse was just linked to the 12 disciples. If you remember, the 12 disciples included Judas as well. Really, it's speaking of the whole church, the saints will reign in the new kingdom. Just as Daniel 7 said, we will reign with Jesus, just as he reigns with his father. So how can Jesus say that he is the son of man? Well, 
Because our son of manness, if that's a word, it's not a word probably, but our son of manness is derivative. We get it from him. That was always the plan, so Daniel 7 was right to include that, include all of us in that picture. But he is the son of man, all that the son of man should have been. But we get that derivatively from him. As he is, so we are, by virtue of our union with him. You see, the shape of scripture is such that it comes to a point in Christ. The saints become the saint. The people become a person. The nation becomes an individual. He fulfills it all and then it sort of flows back out to us. We become the saints. We become God's people. We become God's nation. But only through Christ and only derivatively from him. So how should we respond to knowing that Christ is the son of man and that we will share his reign? Well, the first thing I'd suggest that we should do is marvel at God's plan. Marvel at God's plan. That our own flesh and blood would sit on the throne of heaven. That a man would rule the world. What a privilege to bestow on our race when we know what we are like. When we know how we've betrayed him. The amazing plan of God that actually one of our own, our own brother would sit on the throne. The second thing we should do is bow the knee to the son of man. It's not emphasising his humanity, it's emphasising his authority and power that he already has. He is in heaven ruling now and we must bow the knee to him. One day he will come to judge, that's what we see here. He will come with the clouds with his angels and we must be ready for that day. So if you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus, if you've never bowed the knee to him, you need to do it now while you still have time. If we have bowed the knee to King Jesus, then we need to remember that he is still our king. We need to daily, hourly bow the knee to King Jesus in our decisions, in our lives, in our choices. He rules the world. That's what we learn by him being the son of man. So he has a right to rule our life. And then finally, we should remember that as those united with Christ, our pattern will be the same as Christ's. He suffered. That was part and parcel of him being the son of man. In Daniel 7, if you remember, the saints suffered. It's to be expected in our world. That's the pattern for now. But one day, we will reign with him. Reign over what? How will that work? Don't know. (laughs) You can put it on a blue slip if you like. Um, But we will reign. Uh, We will be with him ruling. And understanding Jesus as the son of man means getting our heads around the fact that we will rule with him as well. I think the most helpful illustration I've found for this really is the Narnia books. I don't know if you're into them. But if you remember, as Aslan takes his throne when he defeats the queen, uh, the children that have gone with him take their thrones alongside him, don't they? They become kings and queens of Narnia as well. So we'll share his throne one day. We'll enjoy that privilege. But for now, we're to expect suffering and hardship. That's part and parcel of following the pattern of Christ. So who is Jesus? Well, we've seen this evening he's the son of man, the one who did all that the son of Adam should, the one who crushed the serpent's head, the one who rose again and ascended into heaven to rule, and the one to whom every knee should bow, including our own. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you that one of our own sits on the throne. Father, thank you that flesh and blood Uh, would be there with you in glory and thank you that Jesus did that Father that we might uh, be forgiven and that one day we might reign with him as well 
Uh, Father, thank you that he was that suffering one who came and was mistreated by his people. And Father, help us as we struggle with persecution, as we struggle with hardships. Help us to look to that glorious future that we have, that we see in Daniel 7, that we see as Jesus speaks of his glorious future. Father, help us to long for heaven, long for glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.